This is The Way Forward. I'm Judy Olian, President of Quinnipiac University. We're podcasting conversations with provocative trailblazers who are seeking solutions to today's challenges. In this episode, Quinnipiac Professor of Finance, Osman Killick, and I explore the business of private equity with two prominent investors in the field. David Kaplan, co-founder of Aries and co-chairman of Aries Private Equity Group, and Vikran Soni, Chief Administrative Officer and Chief Operating Officer of Blackstone. We examine how private equity firms determine where to invest, how they screen investment deals, how money is made in private equity, and how young graduates might position themselves to enter the field. Thanks for joining us on The Way Forward. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Way Forward. Uh, I'm Judy Olian at Quinnipiac University, and I am thrilled to welcome our guests, David Kaplan, co-founder of Aries, director and partner of the Aries Management Corporation and co-chairman of Aries Private Equity Group. You can see Aries with the logo. And Vic Ransoni, um, Vic, if you'll allow me to call you that. Uh, Chief Administrative Officer and Chief Operating Officer of Blackstone. I'm thrilled to say that um, Vic has a connection to uh, Quinnipiac. His dad, Shiv Sani, was a longtime professor at uh, Quinnipiac. And I'm joined by Osman Killick, Professor of Finance and Chair of the Finance Department. So thank you, everyone. Uh, for uh, being part of this event. And let me remind our attendees to go to the Q&A function on the bottom of your screen and to enter any questions you might have uh, for the uh, guests and we'll do everything to incorporate your questions. So I'm gonna start uh, from the beginning. You each have quite different backgrounds David, you started as an undergraduate out of the Michigan Business School, the Ross Business School. And Vic, you uh, are a lawyer from Harvard, prior to that at Dartmouth. So tell us how you ended up, both of you, in private equity through these very different starting points um, in your careers. David, you want to start? I'm happy to start. So I uh, actually grew up in the Midwest and went to the University of Michigan uh, 30 plus years ago. And um, it was an interesting journey. And I was very, very fortunate, I would say, in that I was able to get into the private equity industry early, um, really starting. I graduated college in 1989, moved to New York and worked on, in, uh, on Wall Street in investment banking. Uh, and then there was kind of a seminal event uh, at that moment in the industry when Drexel Burnham went bankrupt, um, which uh, caused a lot of businesses to be created for many of the you know, folks that worked at Drexel. And we could certainly spend an hour talking about that. Uh, but a big group went over to my firm um, that I was working at at the time, and I moved out west to work with them. And then I met the folks at Apollo who had started uh, their business out of uh, Drexel, you know, alum, if you will. And so it was really fortuitous and, and, and fortunate, I, I should say, uh, that I was in sort of the right place at the right time 
uh, and was very young um, and saw an opportunity to be on the buy side. And I'm sure we'll get into it in much more detail as to the attractiveness of why it's interesting to be in the private equity business. Uh, but I really wanted to make that transition from uh, being an agent, an advisor, and an investment banker to a principal. And just so that we finish the, the genealogy here, from Apollo, a few of you created the seeds of Ari. Exactly. We essentially spun out of uh, Apollo uh, roughly uh, 20 years ago. Vic, how did you end up in private well, equity? My, my journey is uh, is much less exciting than David's. He was really at the got to be at the cutting edge of something, um, and has probably amazing insight and stories. So I, I grew up in New Haven um, and spent um, quite a bit of time in Hamden over the years, actually, um, and Cheshire and other places. Uh, I was uh, a disappointment to my parents because I went to law school, not medical school, and then having done that, uh, I really felt like I was more interested in the commercial aspects of transactions than the legal aspects. Why were we doing something? How was a company value a certain way? Why was somebody buying company X and not company Y? Um, and I very much wanted to go into private equity because that seemed to be the best way to pull all of these things together. I didn't know a thing about finance. And so I said, geez, I have to learn something about finance and I'll go and work in investment banking for two years. Um, and then I'll go work in private equity. That ended up taking me eight or nine years because life happens and you do different things. And from there, um, you know, when I was a little bit older, um, I was kind of in my mid thirties, I was able to move over to private equity. And Vic, what was it that you said, I wanted to get into private equity from early on? What was it about private equity that was so attractive? I think it's, it's really interesting when you can look at kind of the operational and transactional and financial aspects of something. And, you know, David made a comment, which rings true about sort of moving from the agency side to the buy side. And uh, when you're a financial services person, uh, accountant, lawyer, banker, you're a little bit more transactional. Of course, you give advice. It's really important. When you're the owner of a company, uh, you have to, it's with you when you wake up the next day and you have to deal with the good and the bad. And there are people issues and there are regulatory issues and uh, market share and competitive issues. And it really gives you quite an interesting lens into all the aspects of finance, but also of business. It's a very full meal. So I, I found that to be really, you know, sort of engaging and interesting. And David? I have a bit of an entrepreneurial streak in me. And it's really interesting as a banker, an advisor, what have you, you define success on closing a transaction, collecting a fee, and then moving on to the next sales cycle advice or assignment. Um, we wake up, wake up every day with the investments we have in companies, trying to make them better, grow them, uh, be good stewards of those assets and a partner to the management team. And that really, uh, for me personally, uh, fulfills this entrepreneurial streak in me because we're entrepreneurial across a number of different companies, not, the, not to mention ourselves. I'm, I'm sure Vic at Blackstone and you know myself at Aries, we have been building and growing our own businesses. And in a lot of respects, both Blackstone uh, and Aries are disruptive forces 
in financial services ourselves. And so it's a really interesting uh, intersection of both being an investor, pricing risk, as I like to say, being a good steward of the assets in which we invest, and also uh, being participating in a growth company ourselves. As owners. Um, so, so let me, um, before Osman jumps in here, I think it would be valuable for our audience to hear from you both, uh, just how private equity factors into the multiple businesses that Aries and Blackstone uh, operates. These are large, large um, uh, firms, financial firms, and have several lines of business. So, so talk about that. And in full transparency, I should disclose that I am on the board of, of Aries. Um, but please, David, uh, talk about Aries and then Vic about uh, Blackstone, assets under management and all that story. Sure, sure, sure. So um, we manage today about $200 billion. Uh, we have roughly 1,500 employees. Uh, we have a couple dozen offices around the globe, uh, North America, Europe, and Asia. We are not in Latin America. Um, and the whole ethos of our firm, and I mentioned uh, just briefly earlier that we ourselves view ourselves as a bit of a disruptive force, a growing uh, company. Our whole ethos is predicated on a culture of collaboration across what I like to refer to as related asset classes of which private equity is one. So we are basically in the private equity, the credit uh, lending business uh, and real estate. And by comparing and leveraging off of each other's relationship networks and industry knowledge that is resident within each of those asset classes, we think we're better investors as a result of that. And so private equity is an incredibly important element to what we do day in, day out, but equally uh, important is credit and real estate. And we look to grow those asset classes because uh, it does help retention and career growth inside of Aries to keep your best people if we ourselves are growing. And so that's a very, very key piece to being a very good uh, company ourselves delivering good performance in our assets that we manage. And I should add that you have about 1,400 employees or so. Roughly 14, 15. Yeah. 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 And of those, how many professionals? Just to give students a sense of. Yeah, it's um, the, the historical uh, ratio would be kind of one to one uh, investment professionals to, to back office, if you will. Uh, for us, it's more like one to two back office. We're at 525 investment professionals. I think the operational intensity of what it is we do. Blackstone does other firms that look like ours that are at scale has only increased. Uh, and therefore, uh, that ratio has deviated from a historical one-to-one. Vic, talk about Blackstone. Sure. And I'm going to, I'll talk a little bit less about Blackstone and a little bit I want to follow up on some a thread that David was pulling on uh, at the end of his comments. But Blackstone, we, we have about six, a little more than $600 billion of assets under management. Um, we have about 3,000 employees and we're, our footprint, I think, is pretty similar uh, to Aries in terms of geography. Uh, and we operate in a lot of different businesses. We kind of identify them as real estate, private equity, credit, and uh, hedge funds and hedge fund solutions. But within each of those in our private equity business, we have 
a secondaries business. We have an opportunistic business. We have a life sciences business. Uh, we have an infrastructure business. So there are sort of layers and layers of businesses. And I think David made the exact right comment is, you know, the, the sum of the parts has to be greater than the individual parts in terms of connectivity, intellectual property, thought, all of that. That's, a, that's a, I think, a really, really um, important and compelling point. Uh, the thing that I wanted to raise, which I, I think is where, where David was going, is as you think about careers as a younger person, these firms, these large alternative asset managers, they're all sorts of jobs that are meaningful, remunerative, exciting jobs that are not just the job of being a private equity deal professional, which is the one that people think, you know, that's top of mind. But whether it's in other asset classes or, you know, in our firm, I'm sure the same at Aries, whether it's in fundraising or tax or accounting or technology, which is an area where we're hiring a lot, there are lots of jobs that people don't think about when they're coming out of school. And the industry, I think, frankly, hasn't like fully professionalized how it hires because the industry has grown so rapidly. And so if it's an industry that you're interested in, don't just think about the one job. Uh, think about all the different jobs and, and you, you'll find more opportunities. And I, I like to tell people that, yeah, to be an analyst or an associate in a top private equity group, like that's really hard. Thousands of people apply for these jobs and there are not that many of them. But there are all these other interesting jobs that you may find as rewarding or more rewarding. And so be kind of open-minded as you, you look into this as a potential area of employment. Thank you. And so we're gonna, um, I'm gonna turn it over to Osman, but let me remind everyone to put some questions in. And I think there is there are a lot of questions already and maybe Osman can take off from George's question about what is private equity? Go ahead. Oh, okay. I have to read it the question first, right? <laughs> I think I think it fits with. Um, I think it's with, it's in, in general, the idea is here because we have so many of students of us, and and then when it comes to investing, the only thing they understand investing in the stock market. So, what is the difference between investing in the private equity, the public, you know, the stock market? David, it just is kind of if you can explain, that would be very nice. Absolutely. So it's really interesting when you take a really big step back, um, there is this very large and expanding set of asset classes, generally in the private markets, meaning uh, that when you want to make an investment or you're looking to make an investment, uh, it's not as if there's an exchange or there's some form of intermediary or trading desk that is making a market in that security, whether it be equity, debt, real estate, et cetera. And what's happened around the world, um, and I'm sure we might get into here some interest rate discussion, is there is a global hunt for yield by investors because returns are reasonably muted in particular in credit. And so what a lot of investors have started to do over the last decade to two, and it's really led to a uh, maturation in private equity and private markets generally, 
is rotate capital into these less traded or untraded markets. And so very simply put, if you buy a share of Apple, that's a public equity. Uh, if you buy a technology company, that's an enterprise software company in a private equity fund, and you own 100% of it, you as an individual, another institution who would like to make an investment in that company is simply not able to. Uh, and the way to access that ownership of that company uh, is through the private markets or private equity, which is what we do day in, day out, not just in equities, but also in credit, real estate, et cetera. Big some somehow related question is the, the process that you pick up a company and then ultimately uh, take it to the public. How does it work? I think, well, every company is different. You know, sometimes you might sell it to a big strategic conglomerate. Sometimes you'll take it public. Sometimes you might sell it to another private equity firm. Sometimes you might own it for a long time because you really like it. Um, but I think what's, what's critical is upfront addressing, you know, what's the value creation opportunity? Like, what are we going to do to make this company better? Is it, we're going to expand it geographically? Are there a bunch of product lines that they could be in that they're not in? Um, are we going to do acquisitions of smaller competitors? So identifying that value, the world is too competitive. You have to identify that value, value creation strategy up front and then have the resources, the experts, the people to execute on that strategy. And what will happen is if you make the company higher growth, more profitable, bigger, then you'll have lots of opportunities to you know, ultimately monetize your investment um, and make a successful deal. But so I think it's about upfront identifying what are the good neighborhoods thematically top down, what are the sectors that you believe will have strong secular tailwinds. And then within those good neighborhoods, uh, what are the what are the places where you can create the most value? If I can pick up on um, Osman's questions about what is private equity, there's a question here from Ryan that says, could you break down the difference between private equity and venture capital? Vikrant, do you wanna? Yeah, I, I think it's stage of company and can, and oftentimes control venture capital, maybe companies that are in some cases pre-revenue, but in most cases, these are not companies that have positive earnings or positive cash flows. Um, and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes you're a minority investor um, rather than a control investor. So I think the risk return calculus is very different. In a venture capital portfolio, you might have, I'm making these numbers up, five investments out of 50, which generate all of your return. And you might have 45 investments where you lose all of your money because earlier stage, more speculative. And you know what one would call the distribution of returns will be much wider. In, uh, in private equity, you're buying not always, but in general, mature companies that are profitable and cash generative. Um, and again, not always, but often, you are the, you're controlling the company. So you're controlling how capital is allocated, who the C-suite management of the company is, and ultimately how your exit is. So it's really, I guess it's really stage of company. Venture capital much earlier, private equity much later. There's something called growth equity, which is sort of in between those two. 
And David, uh, another question from the audience here, picking up on your uh, discussion earlier about the low interest rate environment and how investors are looking to have um, more outsized returns. So Cameron is asking, and, and uh, I mean, this is close to our own uh, sweet spot here at the university. Could you please talk to the involvement of private equity in university endowment investments? Why are university endowments investing in private equity? Wow, great question. Um, and it's, it is interesting, if you were to bucket institutional investors into various categories, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, whether they be public or private pension funds, university endowments, I would say that many university endowments, and this is a sweeping generalization, have been more forward leaning into private market investing, alternative type of investments, the kinds of things that the Aries and Blackstones of the world do. Um, and the reason is because obviously uh, there's a cost of education uh, and inflation around that um, that has existed uh, it, that these endowments that are uh, supporting the mission of universities and colleges uh, you know, need to get return to achieve. And so, um, you know, that's really, I think at its core, uh, why you see uh, endowments, but it's not just endowments. There has been this increasing percentage across all institutional investor types allocating towards more of these private market investments over the last 10 to 20 years, as we've seen this muted, uh, you know, yield environment that we've all been living in, and, and also because endowments have a longer time frame of returns, they talk about in perpetuity. So duration is a very important concept in what we do. Uh, you know, liquid markets, the stock market. Um, you are literally on a minute by minute basis during a trading day, making a buy, hold or sell decision uh, and are able to do that. Um, you know, Vic, I'd, I'd actually double click on something he said quickly, which is secular themes. Uh, you must, when you buy a company and you control it, uh, and by the way, in venture capital, this is also incredibly uh, important uh, to being a successful venture capitalist, but in private equity, you really need to get the secular right because you're going to live with these companies that you invest in and control for many years. And so it's not as if you can quickly pivot to the extent you got your analysis incorrect. And so there is a great match with endowments in terms of the duration and the, you know, private equity is generally a 10-ish year to 12-ish year fund life that's committed and locked capital. So that does fit well to your point, Judy. So I'll ask one more question and then go back. This is a clarifying question. Um, in a sense, how do you make money, Vic, um, from private equity? What, what, what's the structure of uh, making money? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a really, it's actually a great structure because the incentive alignment is so high. So there, there are two ways that you make money. One is that you charge uh, the investors, what's called a management fee. So that's some amount of money that you're paid annually. It's, it's typically one and a half percent, could be more, could be less, depending on the particular program. Um, and then uh, you receive the firm, Aries, Blackstone, whomever receives what's called carried interest. 
Um, and that's that's effectively a profit share. It's typically in traditional private equity, it's 20% of the profits of the investment. Um, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes you have to achieve some minimum return to the investor. Uh, that's referred to as a preferred return or a hurdle. And the investor typically has to make seven or 8% uh, before the, the Blackstone or Aries or whomever receives any carried interest. And typically in traditional private equity, you only receive that carried interest when you sell things. It's not based on where you have them marked. So you receive a profits interest when your customer receives cash money, not because you think something is worth more or less. And so the alignment, the investors always look at net return, net of fees, net of carry. What am I, what am I earning? And what you've seen over long periods of time, and you can't ever look at a short cycle of two or three years, good or bad, that net of fees and carried interest, the endowment, the pension plan, the sovereign wealth fund is earning hundreds of basis points of excess return uh, relative to the public market. So the, I think the alignment of the model uh, is really strong and works really well uh, for the investors. So, so Gabriel asked, what type of return do you expect to receive from your portfolio companies? What, what is it that you would tell an investor to expect? I think, and Dave, David should chime in as well, it, it, a lot depends on what the risk-free rate is. Um, and, you know, in an environment where the risk-free rate has been zero for a long time, you can only earn, there's only so much premium relative to the risk-free rate that one can earn. And so in this sort of environment, I think with truth serum, if someone is delivering a 15% plus net rate of return to an investor with predictability, low incidence of capital impairment, um, low volatility, I, I think that's pretty good, actually. But D David should weigh in as well. I, I, I would say it's great. And um, that's certainly what the market has been conditioned to accept. And I don't know how granular we want to get uh, in this discussion about what's worked over the last decade and what might work over the next decade. Uh, which could probably look different, which will will probably look different than what was the last decade, but we've all benefited. Even if you're a public market investor, private market investor with increasing multiples, and whether it's a PE multiple, an enterprise value to cash flow multiple, and in venture revenue multiples, um, you know, they have gone up and there's been a very significant reflation. Uh, if you will, or inflation to asset prices and risk assets. And so that has benefited returns historically. And so I would go back to something Vic said, which I think is really important. And certainly those that are listening that are thinking about their future career growth, uh, it is so important to make businesses better no matter what part of the private equity landscape you're playing in, because at its core, if you're doing that, you're able to generate the kinds of returns that Vic just mentioned I think on a consistent basis, even with uh, a lack of future increase in purchase multiples and valuation multiples, which I would project are gonna be much more muted going forward than we've certainly experienced over the last decade. Judah, if I may, is the uh, 
David, it's really the question. There are a couple of them. It's just you already opened up and big start talking about the low interest rate environment, exceptional low on a historical framework. And then the, its effect on the valuation, the multiple just basically went up tremendously, both in the public market and private equity side of it. And, but the right now, as you have indicated, last 10 years doesn't indicate anything about the next 10. And the question becomes, inflation is started going up. Expectation, I mean, five-year, you know, the break-even is about 2.5%. And we will be surprised if you end up seeing 3 4% inflation level sometimes this year. And then the rates, especially 10-year notes, and then the rest of them on the long-ended side of the, you know, the treasury curves this has been going up. How do you think that it will affect the deal activities 2021 and beyond? And what may cause, you know, the kind of effect on the multiples that you mentioned? So, you know, as in all aspects of life, sometimes... Uh, people go a little uh, pendulum swinging too far in one direction or another, and you could have too much of a good thing. And I think there's been a lot of capital rotated into private markets. And the question is, where are we on the supply-demand intersection of capital and available opportunities? And so uh, almost a bit divorced from the interest rate discussion, I think in my opinion and my judgment, uh, the availability of capital in private equity and elsewhere in private markets and in uh, you know, fixed income markets, which are used to finance much of private equities activities um, is going to drive continued robust valuations. And you just see this, you know, if you turn on you know, CNBC or Bloomberg TV or Fox Business or whatever channel it is you watch, and you see this literally day in, day out. Uh, we are living through, I think, in the next 12 to 24 months, absent something truly exogenous and unexpected, which is what the definition of a shock is. Certainly the pandemic was a shock. There's been so much liquidity put into the system, fiscally, monetarily, and otherwise. I, I think multiples and deal activity uh, remain reasonably high. I just don't uh, see another cyclical correction. Now, I will say we are creating potentially bubbles in certain places today, because if you do accept my thesis or my hypothesis that there is too much liquidity in the market right now, that that tends to you know result from too much liquidity, and those bubbles ultimately could get popped. So it's a really interesting environment to be quote pricing risk today in all asset classes, and private equity is not immune to that. Often you want to ask another question? Oh yeah, it's just related. Just David, and I'm gonna to go to the week. They mentioned all of them, and is the expectation because of the tremendous amount of liquidity that valuation will stay high. And I'm gonna to relate to the somehow to the value of the dollar, because the, if the liquidity is gonna stay high, dollar seems to be holding very well. And what do you think that the effects on this high liquidity environment in the dollar? The higher potential inflation rate, and how does it how it may it affect the deal activities, international especially? Vic, you wanna? Sure. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, which I, you know, I'm not a currency expert, but I'll I'll, I'll just give you my sort of layperson's common sense view, which is, um, 
I think, you know, there's a whole question around inflation and whether it will be temporal or long-lived. And there are very strong arguments by very smart people on both sides of that argument. On the one side is the unprecedented, you know, double-barreled stimulus of monetary and fiscal stimulus in an economy that is going to recover on its own very, very uh, sort of aggressively or well. On the flip side, um, we have an aging population and ongoing technological improvements, which will be, you know, sort of a, a dampener on inflation. So good arguments on both sides. You know, there's a, the, this belief that structural long-term inflation is a thing of the past. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I'm reading and thinking a lot about it. Um, I think, um, what does that mean for the dollar and for private equity? You know, you have to look at these portfolios are so global that you can't say, well, geez, a stronger dollar means X and a weaker dollar means Y because your companies have import costs, uh, raw materials costs, customers, um, you know, all over the world. And you're investing in businesses, you know, whose domiciles and whose, whose cash flows are in different places. So, and whatever will happen over the course, the dollar might weaken, it might strengthen again. I think if you, maybe this is too much of mom and apple pie, but if you buy high quality businesses in good sectors and you're taking a five to seven year view, now you can get lucky or unlucky on the currency, but it will not be the, the driving force of a multi-year illiquid investment of a short duration whether a credit bet or a currency bet, it can have a it can be all of the driver of return. But when you're taking a multi-year view, it will not be the main driver of return. So I kind of punted your question, but that that's how I think about it. Over to David if he wants to take a stab at it. So I would um, I'm not going to get into predicting stagflation, which is absolutely a a scenario that I could paint as a as a probability of an outgrowth from here. And a lot of the activities happening, but to me, uh, the way I think about it, I describe this a lot and talk to our investors a lot about this. Is there's sort of a battle of the titans taking place right now in investing of the cyclical battling the secular. And my personal view is, when we are sitting here five years from now, if we do a way forward five years from now, we look back at this conversation, we will have declared that the secular will have trumped the cyclical, meaning. Those forces are so powerful. And it's really what Vic just said. It's this acceleration of transformational change across every industry on the planet and the way we all interact together, uh, not only just as a, a commerce comment, but socially and politically and otherwise, uh, because of technology, uh, that you have to get the secular right if you're investing for the long term. And so Yes, we could sit here and debate the dollar, the weak, strong, inflation, et cetera. All those fall into, for me, the cyclical bucket. Uh, much more important is to analyze and get that secular piece uh, right and really be thematic in your approach to investing if you're doing it in a longer duration format like we do in the private markets. So I'm gonna ask because we have a lot of themes that we wanna cover and we have much less time, that we uh, try and get through um, more questions to cover a lot of the themes that are coming up here in the questions. 
I want to go back to a fairly basic one, and I'm actually going to riff off something that Dominic asked here, and that is, how, how do you evaluate the deals that come your way? Uh, what's the deal ratio of what you look at versus what you invest in? And what are some of the key criteria that you evaluate? And I know that's a humongous question because you go through a, a, a laborious, detailed, rigorous process. But talk about the process um, a little bit. Maybe David, you start. Well, I don't want to tell Vic any secrets here. So I got to be really careful because we are friendly competitors. Um, but, uh, you know, in all seriousness, uh, really just going off of some of the commentary I just made around the secular, we start uh, by, you know, really organizing ourselves around industries, uh, but looking at what we refer to as relative value that is available in different industries. Uh, and try to identify some themes that we're excited about that we think we can get behind uh, in those respective industries, and then try to identify companies on a proactive basis using our network of relationships. And we have all kinds of techniques that we uh, undertake and utilize, and the platform gives us at Aries Management itself a very big advantage there. there. And we try to identify companies that we think will transact or sell themselves or look for capital to uh, grow faster uh, and get ahead of uh, processes, if you will, uh, that when a company actually puts itself up for sale. And that's really at the top of the funnel. You ask about ratio uh, as a math person and as a, you know, our organization is built around people, process, and culture. Our process has a bit of math associated with it. If you just try to probability weight, making a few good investments a year in a given fund strategy, looking at as wide a funnel at the top so that you can assess uh, multiple opportunities and look at the relative value of them to make those few investments, that's ability to be selective uh, leads to better outcomes. So Vic, um, drawing on David's response that it's clearly a proactive, deliberate process as opposed to a reactive opportunistic process. What is it that drives what buckets you're gonna go and invest in? Is it people? Is it opportunity that you see? Is it an ecosystem that you wanna create around a hot area? It's, I, and, and David said this and he's right, you know, the macro overwhelms the micro and so, you know, for us thematically identifying where are the neighborhoods where we want to spend time, you know, that's, that's, I think, arguably the most important decision. Um, and so for us, you know, if we, you know, made a decision many years ago to allocate capital uh, in and around digital disruption, that, that was not a unique thought. Lots of people had that thought. And that expressed itself uh, in becoming a very large investor in warehouses and logistics, which is not a particularly sexy, exciting thing to own a bunch of warehouses, but it's a pretty good thing to do. Um, that same thesis would get expressed in enterprise software, which is a very common theme, but also in things like mobile payments, um, online gaming, online dating. So you build these, these thematics and then you invest around them because those are the places where you think there's going to be the most growth and the, the strongest 
kind of secular tailwinds. And sometimes what you have to look look for is what are the second or third derivatives of a trend? Because the first derivative may not be investable. It's too expensive. You know, it's it's transparent to everybody. So there's not good value. So what are the indirect ways to play um, what you think are the most compelling trends? Give an example. I think one of the examples is warehouses, the lab space in the pharma field. In yeah, so that, again, I don't want to cross any, um, you know, public-private lines, but for us, the, the growth and investment in the life sciences area globally is profound, and this is a mega trend, and what's happening in drug discovery and precision medicine is, is really significant for all of us as humans, and one of the ways that we've invested in that space is being a very large owner of life science office space, um, and, and so again, it's it's somewhat pedestrian in a way, but it's, you know, these are office spaces that need to be in certain cities where the talent is, and you cannot conduct R&D via Zoom. You must be in a properly equipped setting. And so that that's an area where we've been very active. Um, and, you know, just along the life sciences value chain, there are are companies that provide consulting services to life sciences companies. Uh, there are logistics businesses that provide storage and transport. There are all these sort of derivative, sort of less sexy or high profile ways to play uh, these compelling trends. And David, just so that we calibrate people's expectations here um, about the very low hit rate once you evaluate companies and actually invest in them. What, what is that ratio typically? So it depends, you know, it, it, it really is uh, a difficult statistic to quote. Um, but I would say we're probably, uh, and again, you're planting a lot of seeds in any given year that could grow into a transaction or an investment a year or two or three later. So that is something very important to keep in mind. But, you know, it's not atypical for it to be one out of 100. Um, you know, we look at 100 things in, in a year and we winnow it down to one. And it's it, you, that the fact that there's concentration in a typical private equity fund, uh, I would say this is very, very generic statement, five to 10% positions. So you're talking about 10 to 20 companies in a given fund. Uh, that's why selectivity of assets, backing the right management team, backing the right business model, profit model, going after an opportunity is so important. And that's why looking at so many things to find the right fit for what it is you were looking to express in terms of a secular view is critical to the whole model. And I, I think we have uh, in the marketplace, we being Aries and Blackstone, a bit of an unfair advantage. If you, if you think about what Vic just said, he was actually talking about multiple asset classes in the private markets, real estate, private equity, and possibly even credit, touching this thematic approach to life sciences and the disruption and transformational change happening in that industry and the growth. And so he has multiple colleagues and partners pricing risk in different asset classes, comparing notes, relationship networks, et cetera. So I do think as people assess their careers, 
and where they want to work, it is important to look at the embedded edges and angles that a particular company has in any industry and private equity by no means is an exception to that. You really need to have a, a differentiated model in my view uh, for today's day and age of putting money to work. Yeah, it's just a just sector related question, David, is I know the pandemic is suddenly changes bigger now. The way that we look at the world, everything, education, all those businesses, I mean, working from homes, all those type of things. The question becomes, how do you see the investment opportunities in the commercial real estate market? You want, you want me to take that? That's, that's your date, yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, I would say that uh, when you look at the pandemic, uh, and you see certain things that were pre-pandemic trends that are accelerated as a result of the pandemic, new learned behaviors, both commercial business behaviors and personal behaviors. And then there are some trends that absolutely got catalyzed, I would say in large part in the pandemic. And one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, you know, what is the long-term implications of some of these accelerated and catalyzed trends from the pandemic, and how does it then affect utilization of real estate as one you know, specific example, whether it's office, whether it's hotel, whether it's distribution and logistics, because certain sectors benefited, get what we refer to colloquially as a COVID bump. You know, distribution and logistics would be an obvious place as people are buying more things uh, utilizing supply chains more direct to consumer uh, and consuming things more in their home. And then conversely, how do you think about office space in an environment where you may have more hoteling style models where people might spend two to three days a week working from home or virtually and you therefore require less uh, square footage. Me personally, I believe that there's no replacement for in-person team building and team deployment. And I think we are going to see uh, some return to uh, what was pre-pandemic. Uh, we will never be the same on the work from home environment, but it won't be as radical as maybe some are projecting in my opinion. So these are the kinds of probability weighting exercises investing in anything that's been impacted by the pandemic and certainly commercial real estate would fall into that category. It's just related question is just the, if the paradigm is shifting, doesn't matter whatever it is, what direction, some type of new model, how do you think that it may affect the workforce, especially potential, you know, the new college grad, internship, potential jobs, and so on, especially in the private equity space? You know, I, I think I agree with everything David said. I think there's been a little bit of recency bias and overcorrection on how dramatic you know, the change in workforce dynamics is gonna be, it will be an evolution. It's always an evolution. It will not be a revolution, uh, my personal opinion. But I, so I think for new grads, one, you know, technology is a huge enabler of engaging with more, more firms, more people, right? You, the outreach, you can really scale your outreach and not uniformly, not necessarily in private equity, but Generally, I think there's going to be more, there will be more job opportunities um, where, you, you know, you might live in Hamden, but you're, you're going to work 
wherever in Los Angeles and you travel. So I think it'll create more flexibility. The flip, the flip side is it will create more competition, right? You're comp you, you, you were already competing in a global marketplace for talent. And this, uh, the learnings of COVID and the leveraging of technology are going to, I think will make the uh, talent marketplace even more global. Um, let, let me, I'm gonna pick up on what uh, Osman was saying about careers, but I wanna ask a question that has come up two or three times about um, in our questions about SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, which are seem to be the latest new rage in, in market financial structures. And the question is, are they complements or, or sources of competition uh, to private equity? And I don't know if Vic, you want to start on that? Sure. Yeah. I, look, I think they're both because um, not all companies, some companies desire to be public, private equity. They don't want to be private. So for those companies whose objective is to be public, this is a compliment. Um, the second point I would make is SPACs have become an exit vehicle for private equity, uh, where private equity backed companies, maybe the story is a little bit more complicated, maybe it takes a little bit more time. Um, this is another exit market in addition to all of the other exit markets. But to some, some degree, when there's more capital competing for deals, you, you can't say it isn't, it, it isn't a source of competition Partially, but I think it's all three. It's a complement, it's an exit mechanism, um, and um, to some degree, it's competition. I think the SPAC market, you didn't ask this, but I'll say the SPAC market, there is a pro-cyclical element to it um, that will get reduced, and the alignment structure over time will have to change, uh, I think. Um, but, but the SPAC phenomena, which is those of us who are older has been around really since 06 or 07. Um, this will this will stay around, but the the structure of these vehicles, the selectivity of who is able to raise one of what scale will evolve as this becomes a mature, more efficient asset class. It's a little bit of the Wild West today, and and that will change and evolve and mature. David, do you have anything to add? I, I agree completely. I think uh, maybe the word reckoning is too, uh, you know, too um, hyperbolic, but uh, there's there's a, a shakeout coming. There's just been too much capital rotated into it. But the biggest takeaway is the SPAC method by which a company can go public has during the pandemic been normalized. It is... It was kind of this, uh, this will also sound maybe more of a back kind of water type of way to go public historically. We, we actually rescued a broken SPAC in 2008. So we've touched that market for a long time. Um, we have a SPAC of our own. I know Blackstone has played as well in the space. So, uh, but I do think an institutionalization of SPAC managers is going to come uh, on the other side of some sort of equilibrium uh, point that that we'll see here in the market uh, when we go through a cycle. So let's just go back to something uh, that that Austin started on. 
And, and you, you both mentioned other career opportunities within uh, private equity. You talked about back office. You talked about, so, so talk a little bit, both of you, about how a recent college graduate might try to enter the public equity domain uh, and not necessarily in the, the frontline investment capability. So uh, Vic, do you want to start? And then David. Sure. I think, you know, and I don't know how helpful the comments will be, but I think all of the major firms have pretty good job postings um, and, you know, access to what's available. And LinkedIn, um, which I'll confess, I just learned how to use this year. Um, LinkedIn is a very, very powerful tool to build bridges and connectivity. And, and what happens is, unfortunately, uh, the demand uh, for these jobs far exceeds the supply of jobs. And so you, you need to have something that differentiates you, something about your experience um, that shows that you, you really have an interest, a passion, a skill um, to engage with one of these firms. Sending your resume out to a hundred places via email without some hook, you know, may not, may not lead to many responses. And so I think working networks, participating in conferences, particularly in Zoom, following up with people that you can meet through whatever networks are available to you, academic, personal, professional, you have to kind of work all the angles to get your foot in the door. And you have to have a reason. One thing that I'm always a little bit surprised by is when we interview people, there's so much good information available in the world that when people don't come in having read a lot about the organization and their their answers are pretty generic, I'm always a little bit disappointed by that because you can talk about by spending four or five hours reading why Aries is so special. And they did these three deals, which are very aligned with your own thinking. Uh, so try to customize your approach rather than a very generic, I'm interested in working at your firm because it's great. I'm not giving a great answer, but it, it really has to be like surgical, tactical, uh, not just like a blanket the waters approach. That is a very hard approach. David, anything to add? So, so uh, as a as a parent of three kids, one's 25, one's 23, I talk a lot about hustle. You know, you really have to hustle. And in the private equity business, networking, you know, to really talk about what Vic said is very, very important. And I would emphasize trying to put together and think about if this sounds desirous, touching the private equity world as an investment professional, as a portfolio management person, as a tech-oriented person, looking at the LinkedIn job descriptions, just as Vic said, they said, oh, wow, there might be some interesting fits for me. Put a plan together, a three, four, five-year plan. I'm going to uh, work at an accounting firm, and I'm going to try to steer my work towards you know, covering sponsors in private equity because that will then lead to this uh, three, four years down the road. And so uh, I think thinking forward, uh, the way forward uh, is very, very important uh, to managing uh, getting into private equity. It's unusual to graduate and boom, be in private equity. That is tough to do, but you can go down the lane of accounting, the lane of consulting, the lane of investment banking, et cetera, and think, think that through. 
May I may I ask something it's related is David is just because you both of you mentioned that based on your work was about health is back office other health is front office is the what is the way to move from the back office to the front office what is the process so so I I I I think I may have said back I I probably I don't like the sound of that you yeah. know so try <laughs> not to say that I I may have said it so. But it's there's not there's investment professionals and then non-investment professionals. Um, you know, once you get into a firm like ours and you prove yourself and you are, I think one of the advice I'd give anybody in any career in any you know professional is manage your career, find a mentor, express a desire. So if you're in the finance and accounting department of one of Blackstone or uh, Aries, uh, and you want to get into the investing business. Uh, find a mentor and you know work with them to figure out what that path might look like uh, and milestones to get there. And um, you know if you want to be in portfolio management, which is more of an operational assistance function for companies in which we have investments in and control over, very, very important to, and very valuable and even more so over the next 10 years than it has been over the last 10. Uh, if that's something you want to get involved with, you know, you can, again, work to manage your own career. Very important. And we probably have time for one last question. I'm looking at that. And, and thank you for this glorious sweep of, of the industry and, and markets. But if you could each give us um, a clear-eyed view, a very authentic response to what are the highs and what are the lows of being in the private equity business uh, for someone contemplating an aspirational career? Uh, Vic, do you want to start? Sure. I think it's pretty similar to any job, really, right? The, the highs in private equity tangibly are when you, you, know, you make a deal that you think is interesting and that you're passionate about and you're able to do it. But what's more, the greater high is when through your, your and your team's effort, you create a better company and you're, you're able to realize that value and, and validate all the work you did. So that's the ultimate sort of, I think, uh, feeling of success. When you've created a good company, you've made it better through your efforts and then, then you're able to monetize those efforts. The lows are like any other job. You work on many deals that never happen. You will work on things where you make mistakes and you screw things up and you have bad deals. It happens to everybody. Um, but I, I don't think that's different, you know, from any other job really that you do. You're going to have success and failure and you, you learn a lot more from your failures. You tend not to learn a lot from your successes. Um, you learn a lot from your failures. And so I, I always view that as a, as a sort of a long-term positive, even if it's a short-term low. David? So, you know, very similar comments to what Vic said, but certainly the highs are uh, growing businesses, adding jobs into the economy through those investments, walking into a public pension fund client, uh, showing them your results, knowing that you delivered for them and for their constituents and meaning their pensioners, that feels just really good. Um, and we are, you know, we very much think of ourselves as a purpose-driven and mission-driven organization to deliver returns for our investors. And as Vic said, uh, when you're in the risk business, you make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not taking enough risk. 
and therefore you're not generating the the kind of returns that our investors uh, look for. So those are always tough. Uh, you definitely agree with him. I agree with him 100%. You learn more from the mistakes, but how you manage those mistakes will define you maybe more than your successes. Akhan, do you want to have the last word? Oh, these are these are great questions and answers. I really appreciate it. And from the or student perspective, one of the things that we face, they always, as a young person, look for that dream job. But that dream job still probably is another 10, 20 years away. You need to start someplace. So that adjusting your expectation is a challenge that I see. What, what do you think, David? So we're living in an age of instant gratification and technology has facilitated that. And when you're dealing with a career, um, you know, you really do have to manage your expectations and put those building blocks together to get to your ultimate goal. And that's why I made that comment of put a three, four, five, it's hard to look beyond five years, frankly, but put a three, four, five year plan together. And uh, I think when you're on the other side of that in year four or five, you'll be glad you did. Vic, anything to add? I, no, I think those were wise words. So we, I, I will not, I, 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 I think those were perfectly well said. Well, I want to thank you both, David and Vic. Thank you for educating us, not just about private equity, but also about just reasoned approaches uh, to markets and to careers. Thank you so much. Hope to have you back. Osman, thank you for being my partner. And we'll see you on the next Way Forward. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, David. Take um, care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for the conversation with David Kaplan of Aries and Vic Sawney of Blackstone on the business of private equity. The Way Forward series is directed by Carla Natal and the podcast is produced by QU student Brian Murphy. To learn more about Quinnipiac's podcast studio and the stories we're telling, visit qu.edu slash podcast and check us out on Instagram and Twitter at qupodcasts. Join us on future episodes of The Way Forward. For now, thanks for listening.